Welcome back, dear listener. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. We are officially halfway through our creation series. We are on session four, where we'll be exploring more problems with Darwinian evolution um, related to DNA mutations. So as always, if you want to see the visuals that go along with this lessons, the PowerPoint um, and all the different things that Michael talks about, we are also releasing the video recording on our YouTube, Facebook, and Rumble channels. So that will be made available the same day that this podcast is released. This program is made possible by generous donors like you. If you'd like to support our ministry and help keep this programming free, you can visit evidenceforfaith.org give and become a donor. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And with that, here is Michael Lane in mutations, similar DNA, and junk DNA, more problems for Darwinian evolution. Let's hit this second pillar, mutations. This one, because my background, as I said, I worked in fisheries genetics. This one I find very fascinating. Um, what, what has been taught, actually what I used to teach, because as I told you last night, if you were here, I used to be a theistic evolutionist. I used to teach Darwinian evolution. I was a very staunch believer on it. Matter of fact, I used to debate people on that side. I have been in debates um, at times. Uh, structured debates, even at universities and stuff, um, though I have switched sides. <laughs> and so um, some universities have played tricks on me. And, uh, uh, but I used to debate. My favorite targets were pastors and churches. And I used to love to debate um, things like this, even back in the college days as I was learning into this, um, and get into debates with pastors because pastors, I could, I could just talk rings around them using science and they had no response. And so... Um, Today, I, I don't do many debates anymore, but I have been, um, I was on both, I've been on the other side, and now I'm on this side of the fence, once I started seeing what was really going on and what I was actually working in. So as we get into this, mutations. Now, as I said, definition of Darwinian evolution in any textbook is going to basically say random chance mutations are what run the thing. Death, killing off certain things, that's what runs this process. I'm going to quote, as I will do this frequently today, out of the Miller-Levine biology book and their whole thing here on evolution and how it takes place. And this is what they mention about this pillar of the idea of Darwin evolution. Quote, genes, the carriers of an inheritable characteristics, are also the source of random variation upon which natural selection operates. Once in a while, a mutation may be beneficial to an organism. Hmm. Mutations do occur. There's no question about it. Mutations do occur in cells. Matter of fact, God in his design inside of the human uh, cell has, uh, has designed inside there, as he gave us the DNA molecule, little um, proofreading enzymes, remember enzymes speed up reactions, that when DNA copies itself, when it replicates, it's the scientific term for that, making a Xerox copy because the cell's going to divide and it's going to give the new cell another copy of the DNA. When it does that, sometimes these base pairs, this is the important part, this is just sugar and phosphate, it's these base pairs inside of here, the wrong one gets put in place. And so he designed these little enzymes that run up and down this, constantly looking for an error. And when it finds one, it instantly pulls it out and grabs an, the correct one from floating around and puts it into place. Really? 
Yes, proofreading enzymes. And so we have this system. But once in a while, uh, once perhaps in every 10 million duplications of DNA, that's 10 to the 7th power, one, uh, that's one followed by seven zeros, of course, it's fairly rare, but one does pass every now and then. Now, when God created Adam and Eve, he said everything was perfect. They had perfect DNA. No flaws, no errors, no DNA. Or, I'm sorry, no, no errors, no mutations, no cancer, no nothing. It was a perfect environment. Once the fall happened, then that's when all this started. And we start getting errors in our DNA. If you'll notice at the beginning, the question often comes up, I get asked sort of a foolish question in a way, if you don't understand your Bible, where did Cain get his wife? If God only created Adam and Eve, I often get asked by Christians, where did Cain get his wife? Did God create more people? No. He would have married his sister. Ooh, taboo. Well, it is today. Why don't we let close relatives marry? Because of mutations in our DNA. Back then, there's no mutations in DNA. You don't have a problem. It wasn't until after... Um, you get to the time of Moses that God tells the Israelites to um, stop doing this. Stop marrying really close relatives. Uh, stay inside the nation of Israel. Of course, at that time, it was very large, uh, millions of people. But we start stop seeing that happening. Though you can in certain states in the United States today, you can still marry like a second cousin. It does happen. Um, though they do have a higher risk of the mutation if they're carrying the same, they're going to have some of the same genes because they're in the related family. But mutations do occur. We do know this. A couple will squeak by. And in most cases, it doesn't change too much. God has designed the system for our DNA that a little changes sometimes don't do anything. Majority of those don't. Once in a while it does, and it totally causes the whole cell to die. In some cases, we have found out that's what cancers are, that a gene gets changed and it forms a cancer. And then that cancer spreads like wildfire. They have a much higher um, cell cycle or cell reproductive rate, so they grow quicker than normal cells. If we all know this, because we probably all know somebody who's had cancer. Why do we see mainly elderly people with cancer instead of children? It's because their DNA is older and it's been replicated more times. Though it is sad, matter of fact, I got a message today from one of my former colleagues, to a uh, married couple I used to teach with. They have a daughter who's in high school, and she, um, about four years ago, was diagnosed with an extremely rare, very bizarre cancer, and she has been battling constantly. Her name is Megan, and she is battling constantly. This last night, I found out they had to rush her back to the hospital. She's had so many surgeries um, because she was born with a mutated gene. It's rare, you don't see it as often in children because it's, as time goes on, we keep replicating our DNA, we start getting more and more errors in it. That's how this works. But errors do occur, mutations do occur. Now, let's talk about this. Mutations, which is the main pillar, outside of time, the main pillar of Darwinian evolution, for theistic evolution. We have to have these uh, mutations occur and they've gotta be beneficial. There's a mathematical problem, though, for evolution when you want to do a series of related mutation. If we're going to start with, say, like a, making very basic term here, say an earthworm, and we want it to change into a grasshopper over millions of years, we have to make changes in its DNA to get it to, to be like this. And that's what evolution is saying. We started off as one simple cell um, in the primordial soup, 
full of cyanide and formaldehyde, and somehow that survived. And then it started mutating and adding genes to it until we get to what we are today. And you have all the diversity of life, what is often called Darwin's tree, with all the different organisms being shown going back to an original organism, an original cell. Well, the odds of getting, mathematics now, the odds of getting a series of two related mutations, related, um, the probability of this is, well, if a mutation is t um, occurs about um, one every 10 to the seventh power, so to get two, that would be 10 to the seventh times 10 to the seventh or 10 to the 14th. Follow me? So seven times seven, or seven times two, we have two of these, that's 14. That's a one now, 10 to the 14th is a one with 14 zeros behind it. Scientifically, if you were here last night, that is within the realm of possibility. Remember, anything beyond 10 to the 50th, scientifically impossible. This fits. So that's what we end up with. Now, mutations like this might produce in a fruit fly maybe an edge, uh, a very wavy edge of a wing. It's a long way from producing a totally new structure. Two mutations is not going to do that. Most of the times we get two mutations like this, it causes a cancer. But that's a long way from forming a totally new creature, going from, say, like an earthworm to a grasshopper. That's a major thing, going from a fish into an amphibian, going from an amphibian into a reptile, going from a reptile into a mammal. Those have got to be a lot more mutations. So there has to be um, uh, more mutations for these things to occur. What's the odds of getting three related mutations for a structure? Seven times three, 10 to the 21st. So now we got a one with 21 zeros behind it. I don't know what you, it's called a billion trillion. That's a honking big number. Scientifically, it's possible because it's still within the one to 10 to the 50th range, but highly unlikely. That would be the equivalent of flipping this coin a billion trillion times and each time it comes up heads. I think most of you would say, you're pulling one over on me. <laughs> of course, who's gonna be standing here long enough to do that? <laughs> Our fingers are good tired. That's to get three mutations. Have we changed the organism at all? Hardly anything. Tribe for four mutations. Where are we at now? What's seven times four? The 1028. That's a one with 20. I don't know what that number is called. Four mutations, though, do not even start to make the change to go from an earthworm to a grasshopper. Well, why do I keep saying this? Well, an earthworm is a segmented worm. You see segments of the body. Grasshopper, I'm using that because it has a segmented uh, abdomen. So they do say this in biology books. That you can see how a grasshopper is related to the earthworm. They had to evolve from it because they both had segmentation. We'll talk about that tomorrow. <laughs> but anyway, now, here's the question for you. Name a mutation. Remember, this is their whole theory. Name a new mutation that adds beneficial genetic into the genome that is beneficial. Name one. I was... I won't say the university. A number of years ago, I was invited by telephone to come to a major university and do a presentation on biblical archaeology. Like I say, I've got books. We have a couple of my books over here. I lead trips to Israel, co-lead trips with Dr. Stephen Notley. Um, that's my hobby is archaeology. It's not my background. I have a history minor, but that's my background uh, uh, more in, as a hobby. So they invited me to come and speak to the student body in a big auditorium on biblical archaeology. So I packed up all my artifacts and stuff and went to the university. When I got there, um, I was met by someone who helped carry my stuff into this auditorium to escort me where I'm supposed to go because I had no idea. 
I'd never been there before, and we're carrying all these boxes. And as we're walking into this building, we get right up to the doorway. Uh, this person turns to me and says, do you know why you're here? And I said, yeah, I'm here to talk on biblical archaeology. He says, no, you're not. I said, what? What am I here for? And they said, you're here to debate the biology department on evolution. Right. And as we opened the door and went in, on the walls were pictures. They had my picture even, and little papers struck all over the place. Come here, our biology department, debate the creationist. Was I prepared for that? This is going to be a formal debate. Formal debate, you have to cite your sources. You just can't say, Crick said this, Watson said this. you got to cite your sources. I didn't have any of my material. I went ahead. They gave me a whole table, like about this size. I went ahead and set up all my artifacts as everything is getting set up. Over here is the biology department, chairman ahead, two other professors, and a grad student. And they're sitting there, and I'm like, okay. When it started, I asked the moderator, can I please make an opening statement before we begin? Certainly. I was brought here to talk about, Darwin, uh, talk about um, biblical archaeology. That's why I was invited. I now see that I've been brought here under false pretense. I am prepared to talk to you all about biblical archaeology, showing you that the Bible has a lot of evidence supporting its truth through history and archaeology. Would anyone be interested in hearing this? Not a sound. The debate began. I was embarrassed, laughed at, scoffed at. Everything you can think of through this thing was one of the most stressful, embarrassing times I ever went through. Because anything that they would say, I, and I would make a counter to it, they would say immediately, we'll cite your source. I can't. And people would laugh at me. Came down to the end of the debate, and I've been made fun of for this whole thing. Came down to the end of the debate, and I said, I just have two things, two questions I want to ask my opponents. Just two questions, and I will leave it with that. Question number one. You stated that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. Let's stop working with that. Let's just work with, with you know, integers themselves. Let's, I'll give you even a couple of billion. I said, let's say six billion years. I'll give you a couple extra billion years. Is that enough time to go for Darwinian evolution to start from one cell to have enough mutations to form all of the existing life forms that form, have formed on this planet, living today and extinct? Is that even enough time? Because we know the mutation rates. So mathematically, I know what the answer is. Six billion years isn't even close. And I said, first of all, is that enough time for your theory to fit? 4.5, or I'm sorry, six billion years old. I'm giving them time. They mumbled upon themselves, and then the chairman says, no, that's not even close. And the place, ooh. Here's my second question. Darwinian evolution states, and your whole theory is based upon, random chance mutations adding new genetic information to the genome that benefits the organism. Since this is, we've had so many different organisms, so many things going from the first cell to the human female today, we have so many different types of life forms, you must be able to cite many examples, provable examples of a mutation adding new genetic information to the genome that benefits the organism. Please just name me one. They sat there, and I'm listening as hard as I can as they haven't got their mic on, and I'm trying to listen, and I remember the guy, the chairman, saying he's got us. And the grad student said, no, I have an answer for that. And I couldn't hear what they were saying, but I had a good suspicion of what they were going to say. And what ended up happening was um, <laughs> they, they did finally come back, and they said, yes, we can, we can give you one. Um, that was my whole thing. Is there evidence? This is, you understand this is a secondary pillar of 
Darwinian evolution. If this pillar falls, the whole theory falls apart. Can you cite one example of a mutation, random chance mutation, adding new genetic information to the genome that benefits the organism? The chairman of the department says, no, we can't. Well, I wasn't going to take that because I knew there was some more discussion going there, so I sort of edged him on. I said, so your whole theory is based upon this, and you can't give me one example? This had to happen 10 to the Google of power. There had to be so many mutations for all the different life forms, from bacteria to, to all the different kingdoms of life to, to here, and you can't cite one? Finally, the grad student, because I knew he had something to say, and I knew what it was going to be, he said, yes, I'll give you one. He said, sickle cell anemia. Everybody got quiet. Now, if those of you who are unfamiliar with sickle cell anemia, it's a disease. It is a genetic mutation. Um, it is transferable. It is hereditary since it's genetic, where instead of having our cute little donut red blood cells with a any belly button on both sides that moves very smoothly through capillaries, uh, single file, they have a sickle, a moon-shaped, crescent shape to them, and they get clogged up inside the capillaries, causing blockages, causing intense pain, and eventually causing death. So when he said sickle cell anemia, everybody got quiet. And I turned to him and I said, so your best example that you have for Darwinian evolution, for a random chance mutation adding new genetic information to the genome that benefits an organism is a fatal disease place erupted in laughter. In a way, they're correct, because if you do have malaria and you get sickle cell, it can prolong your life months to maybe a year. It's extremely painful. It is nothing desirable. I would not call it beneficial whatsoever. I've used this often. This is what I often call my trump card in debates that I use now, because this whole theory is based upon this, and there's no evidence of this ever happening. Any mutation, like the picture I just showed you prior, look at the mutations that form. Do you call those? Go back um, here. Do you call these beneficial? Most birth defects, that's what's happened. We've had random chance. Or how about um, most uh, miscarriages are caused by there's some type of problem with the DNA. Something has been changed. It's not beneficial. Mutations, we don't look at mutations. Would you consider cancer to be a beneficial mutation? Nobody would. But in the realm of biology, we're considering these things. They had to have happened and be beneficial. Why? Because it's the only way this theory will work. Now we get to then, well, how did the first cell even form? Where did we get that first DNA? We talked about first cells last night with biochemical predestination and talking about the experiments that were done trying to prove it. But how do we get to DNA? How many mutations have had to occur to get from the first bacterial cell to the first animal cell? How many mutations had to happen to get from the first animal cell just to get to the first primate and talk about human evolution? We, I can't even begin to gather how many tens to the Googleth power of mutations had to occur. What do I mean by this? Darwin's tree, which adorns in all of our textbooks, is a picture. This is a really nice one here my IT person found. 
If you've traveled the whole thing back, you'll come to a spot where it begins, right about in the middle of the slide. That's where the first cell formed, and it says, in the ocean's rust. In other words, in the primordial soup, as we mentioned last night. Bacteria form first, then the archaebacteria, eukaryotes, then we have the plants, red algaes, the fungies, then you start getting up, and you start running into the pinkish area, and we start having animals, till finally we get over to the mammals, etc. And you can see on the time frame at the bottom how many um, millions of years this took to do, and this is what Darwinian evolution shows. What's running this? Random chance mutations. You can see time. The pillar of time is here. It's the bottom of the axis. But what's running it? Mutations and death. That's what runs this system. And Christians will say, yes, God used this. God uses death and calls it good. In the days of creation, oh, it's perfect. Everything's killing each other. Lovely. That's perfect. It's not the God I know. Stephen Jay Gould, probably the greatest biologist of the 20th century, wrote in a paper called, well, it was published in Natural History, a paper called Evolution's Erratic Pace. Now, he is not a believer. He is not a Christian. But he acknowledged something very, very interesting. He says, quote, the extreme rarity of transitional fossils. That's the fossils that show all these mutations going from an earthworm to a grasshopper. We call that the fossils that would appear here, as Darwin called them, transitional fossils. The rarity of transitional fossil in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees, Darwin's trees, like I just showed, that, that adorn our textbooks have data only at the ends, at the tips and nodes of the branches. Everything else that you saw branching all the way back to the first is inference. It's all guesswork. There's no evidence to support it. That is amazing. However reasonable, not the evidence of fossils. How many times I've come across even biologists say, well, the fossil record shows. No, it doesn't. And there are many scientists. I, I use Stephen Jay Gould. I could cite many others. But Stephen Jay Gould, most respected biologist probably the 20th century, he even acknowledged and called it the trade secret of paleontology. We do not have the fossil record to show this. The curator, I can't think of his name, he used to be the curator at the Museum of Natural History in New York, stated practically the exact same thing. We do not have the fossil record. Our museum is adorning things, that we have all these fossils and stuff, but we do not have transitional records. Gould said it the best, that's why I use his quote. There is no evidence. They're guessing on all of this. This was what Louis Pasteur had a problem with Darwinian evolution. He says your entire theory is based upon inference, guessing. You have no scientific evidence to support it. You're just making hypotheses that this earthworm evolved into a grasshopper. Pasteur would say, show me the fossils showing all of these changes over millions of years. We don't, ex we, we don't have them. Darwin, in his book, even stated, in The Origins of the Species by Natural Selection, stated, if this theory is true, the fossil record will prove it out. He wrote this in 1865, I think it was, when it was published. Um, and since then, science has been looking so hard for this, more, more for this than anything else, more than even the cure for cancer. People have been looking for these fossils to show this theory because they don't like what the alternative is. And so they're looking for this, and they haven't found the fossil link for one. Yet they will many times, and it's usually biology teachers that unfortunately say, the fossil record bears this out. Show me the fossil record. Even Gould acknowledged, we don't have it. And if anybody would, it would have been him. By the way, 
later on in his life before he died, acknowledging this statement that he made, he said, um, I'm still going to believe in Darwinian evolution because I don't want to think about the alternative. So the guy died a non-believer, but he acknowledged what he was believing in has no evidence whatsoever. That's sad. Now, we come across this, though, that they will use then, having to do with these mutations and stuff that we have similar DNA. Adding new genetic information to the genome is the foundation pillar, as I said, for this whole thing. And evidence that supports Darwinian evolution is to look for the closest human relative. Well, what's that for us? Be apes, correct? How many times have you heard that man evolved from ape? Now, I will say, Christians often are the ones who get this wrong. They say that Darwin says that we evolved from chimps. No, Darwin never said that. If you read his book carefully, he says we, we evolved from an ape-like creature, not from apes themselves. But even so, he's wrong. And so we start seeing, let, let's take a look, because we see charts like this. And this has become very popular in schools in particular in the last, oh, 15 years, very popular, where they compared, um, after mapping the human genome, they started mapping other types of things, African monkeys, gorillas, chimpanzees. And um, this one here shows that chimpanzees have a 99.01% of similarity of DNA as compared to a human. Actually, that number has been recently changed to be um, about 96%. Uh, They've dropped some on this. It's going to continue to drop as we discover more things. But I don't know how many of you have heard this. Our DNA is very similar to chimpanzee DNA, and that proves evolution. It doesn't prove evolution. They have hair. We have hair. Guess what? We're going to have the same gene for that, right? Hey, they can eat plants like bananas. Hey, we can eat plants like bananas. We're going to have enzymes that can digest it, the same one. Why is God going to make a totally different type of enzyme when he's got one that works perfectly? God uses design constantly. We have seen last night, God is a God of design. Why make 15,000 different types of enzymes that amylase will do the job itself? Let's just use the same, same model over and over. And that's what he does. But even so, this is so erroneous. They don't tell you the whole story with this. And this is where it really gets screwy. But this is what they teach. Because our DNA is so similar to chimpanzees, it shows that we evolved from them. So, yeah, right, sure. Mm -hmm. And that's from the biology book that's listed up there. That picture is from that. Well, there's a problem with this whole theory on talking on this aspect. First of all, we did not evolve, as I said, we did not evolve from chimpanzees. And that's showing that. You can see chimpanzees break off on a different path than what humans do. But you keep going back, we came from a similar ancestor. That's what Darwin says. And we keep finding these things like Lucy would be in here and other stuff like this. Uh, they start showing all these things. Um, but there's, again, as Gould said, there's no fossil record showing all the connections between these. And I'll show you that later on in a thing. But here's what the problem is. There's a thing that's called junk DNA. Junk DNA. If you've never heard of this, matter of fact, a new article just came out in Acts of Facts. This is a Christian-based thing from the Institute for Creation Research. This is the October issue. And they have a whole, chap or a whole section on here about junk DNA, new discoveries that have just been made. I just got this earlier this week in the mail. And another function of junk DNA discovered. What is junk DNA? What am I talking about? That chart that they just showed you, and I will backtrack here to show you this, this idea. They're saying, say this is our, our DNA. This meter stick is our DNA. There's 100 centimeters. 
on this thing, 1,000 millimeters. Now, according to the a lay, a way a lame person would look at this, if it says, and we'll use the 99% or say 98, that means if I cover up this part with my finger at the very end, that part there, we're different. Everything here, we are the same as a chimpanzee. Do you understand what they're saying? All of our DNA through here is exactly as a chimpanzee except just this little part here. That's what makes us human. Thus, they say this proves that we evolved from chimpanzees. Problem. Because there was a thing called junk DNA. They're looking at linear DNA of just the genes that we use. This would be like genes for amylase. That would be genes for making bones. That would be genes for making hair. That would be genes for making um, skin cells. We have similarities with chimpanzees. There's no question about it. But it doesn't mean we evolved from it. God just used a basic design. But they're not looking at the whole DNA. They're just looking at those kind of genes that are activated. If you examine the whole DNA, you're going to see it's really different, and we call that junk DNA. Now, back when I taught school, junk DNA um, is, is examining just a um, they, they look at just a small part. About 3% of the whole DNA is what they're comparing on that chart. About 3% of the entire DNA is the stuff that they say in that 3%. In other words, in this part... Like right here, this, this part here, we are similar. Now, all the other part here is junk DNA. We don't know what in the world it does. So what evolutionists said is that this is all leftovers from when we were other organisms. So here is when we were insects. Here is when we were um, arthropods, or here we are as platyomenthus worms, or nadarians, or stuff like this. It's all buried inside of our DNA. And um, they say that's, they don't, they don't want to look at that, because that's leftovers. The part of the DNA that works, this is like 3%, wow, and that 3%, we're so similar to chimpanzees. Well, yeah, but what about the rest of this? Because we're not. Our junk DNA is nothing like any other organism on the planet. And they've been discovering stuff like this. It's so different. So when you look at the whole piece of DNA, look at the size of this chart. This is the part that codes all of our genes that we're using right now, that we, we think of. Eye color, hair color, et cetera, the height and stuff. All of that is just in this little pie wedge. The rest of this is all junk. Look at the amount of DNA that we're not even considering. Why didn't we consider this? Because until about 20 years ago, we had no idea what it was. We didn't know what it did. And they're still just finding out articles and publishing articles on what this does. And it's not junk. It's very necessary pieces of DNA. Junk DNA is not evidence of leftover genes in Darwinian evolution. That is not what its function is. That's not what it's for. It does other things. Junk DNA is not junk. It's not an evolutionary backover. Humans, the human genome, when they mapped it, we found out that there's only about 2%, 2-3% of our DNA that actually manufactures proteins making up the human body. That pie wedge I showed you, very thin wedge. The rest of this is junk. But they say that that junk is all of this stuff. This is what's taught in the biology books, that they say the junk DNA is all of this. When we were in these stages, we still carry the genes for all of this, but that's not activated. Junk DNA is genes, we thought, that are not activated. We only use this part of it. We use very little part of our DNA, is what they were saying. We now know this is totally wrong. Recent studies have proved that junk DNA material is divided into many categories, and all of them are useful. This article here talks about how DNA, um, or junk DNA, has a thing that helps check against cancer. 
It turns on certain genes. It turns off other genes. It carries pieces of genes and pieces of genetic material from one part of the cell to the other. They transport. The list goes on. And all this is just discovered in the last 20 years. This is amazing what's been going on here. We're finding out all sorts of things that are included in junk DNA. So what do I mean by junk DNA? Here's your DNA. Now, when you, this is an activated gene. This is an activated gene. We need this one, exon 3, exon 5. This stuff is junk. Apparently, up to 20 years ago, we didn't think this was used for anything. This was bi uh, biological leftover from evolution. We do know that our bodies, our nucleus, will take these genes and cut these pieces out like editing and put it all together and make the gene this way. And that's what it is. It gets rid of the junk. You'll notice all the junk's been removed because they said it was biological leftover. We don't need it. Or looking at this chart showing the same thing. We have, this is an important piece of DNA. It's coding from a hair color, or maybe this one's for an enzyme. Well, there's interest, this intron stuff is junk. So it gets cut out. Enzymes come in here. Notice the word enzyme. Speeds up reactions come in here. They edit this thing out and then combine this gene to now be useful. Do you understand now what I'm following here with junk DNA? It's commercials on TV. It's not necessary to the, mo to the program. So they're removed. Don't you love it when you watch a TV movie and the commercials have been cut out? Do the commercials, you're sitting here watching John Wayne and Angie Dickinson, you know, in, a, in some Western, and all of a sudden, here's a commercial about hemorrhoids. I mean, what in the world's that got to do with a Western? No, they cut that out. That's what this is. And junk DNA, these commercials, were pieces of old DNA from when we were arthropods and other things. That's what they used to teach. Matter of fact, Star Trek's Next Generation. Love this show. They had a whole episode based on this. I used to show this when I taught school. I used to put this on a VHS tape and show this in my classroom because there was an episode um, in season four, uh, episode 19. It was called Genesis, and it was where they de-evolved. This is Commander Riker, Jonathan Franks is the actor, and he de-evolved back into a Neanderthal. There was a virus that they got that turned off the active genes that we use, and it turned on the, the junk DNA, and they turned into this. And it gets better. Um, here's Deanna Troy. Deanna Troy, the ship's counselor, turned into an amphibian. There's a guy in engineering turned into a spider. And if you're familiar with the story, Worf, who was a Klingon, he turned into something. They never showed the picture of it because we don't know what in the world it was. But this is all based upon this idea. And I used to use this to show this is what junk DNA is. And they're just activating the junk. But recent studies have shown now that junk DNA is not evolutionary leftover. 80% of the DNA contains necessary components for controlling not only our genetics, but our health. As this paper here, a new study just found another type of thing found in junk DNA to help prevent cancer. It's not junk. It's, they got to get rid of, and they're starting to do this now, removing this whole thing from textbooks because we now know junk DNA is not junk. By the way, speaking of such, octopuses. This is out of Creation Magazine. You want to get a good magazine? This is a great one. Creation Magazine. Um, it's from the, the, I don't know where it's from. <laughs> it's my mailbox. That's where it's from. Uh, Creation Ministries International. This is the best magazine. I love this. They have an article here about octopuses. Do you know that zoologists got together a while back? Octopus are invertebrates. Their eyes are almost exactly the same as the human eye, structurally. This is an invertebrate. It doesn't even have a backbone. It's related to a clam, to a slug. Yet, their, human, or their eye is almost human-like. How did they develop an eye that precise? 
How did that slowly evolve all the little pieces until it perfectly formed and now the thing could see? I mean, there's all sorts of problems with this theory. But the DNA of octopuses really confused biologists. So about five years ago, there was a major conference of zoologists that got together, um, people who study cephalopods, the group of animals that these belong to, and they studied to talk about their DNA. You know what they concluded? There's life on other planets. This is the conclusion of the symposium. All right, I'm not making this up. Many biologists agreed and published papers on this from the symposium that life exists on other planets. How do we know it? Because there's octopuses on our planet. What? The octopus DNA is so unlike any other animals, any other creature on the planet's DNA, the only way we can explain its origin and its, it being here is it had to come from another world. Yeah. Well, where did that one come from? Even if that was true. So we start running into all sorts of problems when we start doing this. They think they find a solution, they don't. Researchers have discovered that supposedly inactivated regions of DNA, this junk DNA, four million switches that turn on genes and turn them off on how cells behave. This was in World Magazine, October 6, 2012. They're telling us junk DNA is not junk. It's not evolutionary leftovers. New data from the Encyclopedia of DNA Elements Project, or ENCODE as it's called, short for, um, for I have identified many switches, things in junk DNA that turn on or turn off lupus, Crohn's disease, Alzheimer's disease, autism, diabetes, and many more diseases is controlled somehow by junk DNA. We are only, when we talk about DNA and heredity, we're only talking about this part of the whole DNA like three centimeters of it. It's all this other stuff. We, don't, we never talked about it. When we do stuff like this, using models, we're talking about the 3%. It's this junk stuff we didn't know what to explain, so we just sort of left it out and just called it biological leftover from evolution. Now we're finding out, oh my gosh, this, this controls so much. So a lot of studies now are trying to figure out what is this? And as I showed you, papers are still being published on it. Famed atheist Richard Dawkins. Oh man, you want to talk about somebody who hates the Bible, hates Christians. Dawkins wrote in his book, The Selfish Gene, that junk DNA was proof that there was no God. When he started finding this out, he says, no, junk DNA is proof there's no God. Because he says, no intelligent God would make so much useless information. He has now retracted that statement because now we're finding out, wow, junk DNA has a lot of information in it. Yeah. Evolutionist, Dr. Larry Moran, University of Toronto, said, Creationists, talking about junk DNA and what they're finding out about it, creationists are going to love this. This is going to make my life very complicated. <laughs> According to Ewan Bernie, uh, director of ENCODE, uh, most of the studied junk DNA in humans was expected to be like other creatures because of evolution. But most of what we have studied is not. It's totally different. And our junk DNA is so different than a chimpanzee. Matter of fact, there's no organism on the planet that is, has similar, even closely similar DNA to us, showing that we are specially created. It does seem that a high percentage of exons in humans can be found in other animals, like I say. We eat the same foods. Um, we, we grow hair. We have fingers. We have digits. Of course you're going to see things like that. But our junk DNA is very, very different, which shouldn't surprise us too much. Because what does God say? Look at this passage that I'm going to close here on. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts. Stop right there. You formed my parts. The psalmist is not saying, God, you started a process where I developed. You formed it. 
right here, this goes against Darwinian evolution. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. When you knit, you use intelligence. You're using a design. This is what this is talking about. We are designed. We are not a leftover of an evolutionary Darwin's tree. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So, DNA, the whole process of mutations, uh, junk DNA constantly shouts, Darwinian evolution is not true. That's amazing. Why don't more people know this? Which is the reason I'm doing Evidence for Faith. Hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>